Uh, there's two readings today. First one from Micah chapter 7 and the second from Matthew chapter 21. From Micah chapter 7 verses 1 to 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbour, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. A second reading from Matthew, chapter 21, verses 18 to 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Dan, if we haven't met before. And um, hey, with the, the new sort of acoustic ceiling that, uh, that Chris mentioned before, you know, when we say, uh, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, you can really, you can really hear yourself say it if you say it loud. <laughs> so have another go at that, okay? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now that's good. All right, let's do that every single week because we are thankful, aren't we? We're thankful for God's word. Hey, another thing I'm thankful for, just to, to give you a quick update, is um, uh, our previous senior pastor at this church, Rob Jenner. Um, I finally got to catch up with him <laughs> after a few months. So uh, if you've been trying to catch up with Rob in April at all, if you've sent them a message or an email and they haven't got back to you, uh, things have been chaos for them. Like they've landed in America, they've had to move a couple of times, 
Um, things have just been, it's been a rough transition for them. So if they haven't got back to you, that's why. Um, but just a quick little update on them. Um, the kids are doing great. They're best mates is the way that Rob put it uh, in a very Australian way. Uh, and, uh, and April's doing well. Uh, they're actually about to start their new church plant in a couple of weeks. And when I say church plant, it's really just going to be them and a couple of other people that they've met. So it'll be small. Uh, I'll tell you the name of the church plant. It's an odd one. It's called King's Cross. <laughs> Which if, you, if you've been around and you've met Rob, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, they're, uh, they're actually in sort of like the new town of Austin. So, so the name makes a lot of sense to, to us at least. Uh, over there, people are just like, oh, that's a nice name. I guess that sounds like a church, King's Cross. Uh, but uh, he, he's sort of, he's cheeky in that way. So, uh, so there you go. We can pray for King's Cross <laughs> And we can pray for for, uh, Rob and for April. In fact, why don't we do that now as we open God's word. Lord God, thank you for your word. We are thankful. We are thankful that you speak to us. Please, Lord, as we open your word by your spirit, may you speak. Speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, speak to us as a body, a church. Please show us, Lord, where you want us to change and grow. Please draw us to your son. Lord, we also pray for our brother Rob, our sister April, and their kids, Sailor, Josiah, Ellie, and Eden. Thank you for the many years of faithful leadership Rob brought here. Uh, and we pray, Lord, as King's Cross Church begins, um, that there would be many years of faithful leadership there as well. Lord, please bring many to be saved in Austin there at that church. And please continue to, pray, uh, continue to, to bless their family, Lord. Uh, as, as they settle into life there. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we open to Matthew chapter 21, it's been a couple of massive days in the life of Jesus. Uh, we've just been back in Matthew now for a couple of weeks, um, but, but compressing this down, really, it's only a couple of days in the narrative. So remember a couple of weeks ago, which in Jesus' timeline is just a couple of days ago, he arrived into Jerusalem announcing himself as the king the one who fulfills the prophecies of centuries ago in the Old Testament. Here he is, the king, the Messiah. Then the very next day, he comes into the temple, the center of Jewish religion, and he he lays down the gauntlet, doesn't he, (laughs) against the religious system of the day. He challenges the religious leaders. He's knocking over tables. He's saying, this is not right. Uh, Religion in Israel is very sick. This has just been a couple of days. Now it's the next morning. Open up to Matthew 21, verse 18. Page 826 on the church Bibles. And I wonder how much time Jesus has had to stop and rest after this couple of really brutal, uh, busy, momentous days. Uh, Clearly not enough. Because if you look here at verse 18, it says that he is hungry. He's returning to the city, he's returning to Jerusalem, and he's hungry. Now we don't often get a window into the dietary habits of Jesus, do we? But here's one of those windows. Jesus, the Son of God, is hungry. And just like us, he has to go and rustle up food from somewhere. There's no coals. There's no woolies. He has to find somewhere. And so verse 19, he sees a fig tree by the side of the road. And I want you to picture it. It probably looks something like this. A big, leafy fig tree. And it's like when you come home after a long day of work, right? You've been busting your gut and then you can smell like as you walk in through the door like, 
there's a roast in the oven, right? Or, or like, ah, oh, there's been something in the slow cooker all day. I can't wait to eat that. That's what this is like. It's been a big couple of days for Jesus. There's the fig tree. Now, what's surprising is if you go over to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11, because remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels, four perspectives on the life of Jesus. Uh, Mark adds a little bit of detail here. He says that it was not the time for figs to grow. So this is the time of year when figs don't normally flower on, on these trees. And yet, look at this big, leafy tree. What a lovely surprise that must feel like for Jesus. And so notice what happens. He sees the tree. He goes up to the tree. He searches the tree. Imagine him there parting the branches, looking high and low. And what does he find? Yeah, well, only leaves, actually. Only leaves. No fruit to be found. It's like when you come home and you find that the roast actually is for someone else. Right? The neighbour has COVID and, and here we go. We're going to cook a roast for them. We're eating two-minute noodles. That's what it's like for Jesus here. Now, uh, there's every sign that there should be fruit. You look at that tree, it's green, it's leafy, of course there should be fruit, it looks like a healthy tree. But then look at how Jesus responds to the fact that there is no fruit. Verse 19, he said to it, imagine him pointing at the fig tree. He says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Now it feels odd to call this a miracle, doesn't it? It is a miracle because, here's my PowerPoint transition, the fig tree withered at once. There you go. But it feels weird, doesn't it? Because it's destructive and, and all of Jesus' miracles to this point have been constructive. He's healed those who have been blind. Uh, he's, he's bound up those who have been lame. He's even raised the dead. This is the only destructive miracle that Jesus has done. So what's happened? Has he lost the plot? Is he just too hungry? You know when you're hungry and you do something that's out of character, like those Snickers ads, you know, you're not you when you're hungry, just have a Snickers. Is it, is it kind of like that? Is that what's going on for Jesus here? Well, we know the answer, don't we? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. This is not out of character for Jesus. In fact, he's making a point. After all, when he came into Jerusalem, he didn't ride a donkey just because, you know, they were out of horses at the horse rental place and, hey, we've got a donkey, you can jump on this instead. No, he was making a point. I'm coming as the humble king. When he came in and he drove out the sellers in the temple, he remember what he did? He went out to Bethany for the night. He didn't just go in and storm the place. He went, he, he observed, then he left and he slept on it and then he came back the next morning and drove them out because he was making a point. It was intentional. And so too here, he curses the fig tree to make a point. He didn't just need a Snickers bar because he was too hungry. He wasn't just acting out of frustration. He wasn't being reactive. He was responding. And he shows his disciples something here in us as well. Here's the point that he is going to make. Jesus searches for fruitful faith. He comes not just to fig trees, but to people. And he searches for the fruit of faith and faith that bears fruit. In fact, here in this scene, uh, the picture is he's coming to those who claim to be God's people. That's what we're going to see. He comes to those who claim to be God's people. And what does he find in their lives? Will he find leaves or will he find fruit? 
Will he find barrenness or will he find what God is truly looking for? It's a question that we must ask of ourselves as well. Jesus comes to our lives. What does he find? What does he see? He parts the branches of soul and spirit. What does he see to the depths of our hearts? Because he does see. And what happens if Jesus comes to someone who claims to be one of God's people, but in fact is bearing no fruit? Those are the questions we're going to answer today. And to answer those questions, the first thing we need to do is understand what this fig tree symbolizes. Right? Jesus is making a point. He's using symbolism to do it. Uh, kids, symbolism is where something, there's something you see, but it stands for something else. I'll give you an example up here on the screen. So kids, look at the screen. What does this stand for? What does it mean? Stop. That's right. Thanks, Emmanuel. Stop. Now, we don't see the word stop on it. I'll put it on there for you. Stop. Uh, but, but you can just tell even without that word that that means stop. Now, why is that? It's just a red octagon. <laughs> well, it's because of symbolism, right? We, we've built up this meaning around a red shape like this on the road to know that means stop, don't just roll through. Okay, and so too here, Jesus is using the fig tree as symbolism. Now, in today's day and age, a fig tree might not mean all that much, but back then, just like a, a red octagon meant stop, fig tree meant Israel. It meant the people of Israel, God's chosen people across the whole Old Testament up to this point. And so Jesus, what he does to the fig tree here is a picture, in fact, of what is happening to Israel. And here's where things get awkward. Because this is such a politicized thing, isn't it, to talk about Israel and particularly to talk about Israel being, what, condemned, judged. These are, these are hard realities to talk about, especially with what's happening overseas at the moment. In fact, just this week I saw an ad. Uh, it was by a group that, that managed to get an ad on the Super Bowl, actually. So they spent like millions and millions of dollars to get this ad out there. And, um, and they've got another ad. I, I won't show you the Super Bowl, Super Bowl ad, but I want to show you a clipping here from one of their other ads. On the left is a mum, a Jewish woman, with her daughter. And uh, they, they are leaving their front door when the daughter looks at the garage and sees that. Now, um, this is obviously the tame version of what really happens in real life, right? With that symbol and that kind of... It's much worse, actually, in reality. Um, but what happens is the woman, of course, gets really scared and bundles her daughter up into the car and they drive off in fear. Then it flashes forward to the woman coming home and she finds that the garage door has actually been repainted. And it, it sort of flips across to the neighbour, whose name is Mr Tony, to the little daughter, and uh, Mr Tony has this splash of white on his boot. He's repainted over the graffiti. Then it puts up a message. It says, stand up to Jewish hate. Now, can I say that's a very good ad? That's, it, it, look it up if you want to stand up to Jewish hate and Mr. Tony will probably get you there. Um, very good ad, very good message. Um, Jewish people are made in the image of God, are they not? Yes. Yep. And they deserve respect, dignity and love, as all people do. Not hatred and violence and threats like is pictured here in this ad uh, I think we all agree on that, right? It's simple. 
there's no room for hating or looking down on Israelite people. And so it's, it's really important here that we see that Jesus isn't being, you know, like anti-Jewish. He's not being anti-Jewish here. He's not being anti-Semitic, if you want the big word. Um, for one thing, he himself is Jewish. And so what he's doing here is, in fact, a judgment on his own people. Uh, but the, the second thing as well is that this judgment isn't based on the fact that they are Jewish. It's not to do with the colour of their skin. It's not to do with uh, the, the, the sound of their last name. This is actually a judgment levied based on spiritual fruit. It is a spiritual judgment, not based on, on race or personality or anything like that. It is a spiritual judgment that has to do with spiritual fruit. And in a way, Jesus isn't actually showing us anything new here. Uh, because all across the Old Testament... Uh, the prophets and the, the writers bemoaned the fact that God's chosen people, Israel, failed to bear fruit again and again and again and again. And it often used the fig tree, actually, as a bit of a metaphor for this. So I want to show you a couple of examples. Micah chapter 7, turn there with me. Uh, if you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 770-something. We'll get there. Micah, 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 where's Micah? After Jonah. Micah chapter 7. This is what Ralph read out for us earlier. Micah 7 on page 780. Verses 1 and 2. And I want you just to hear what the Old Testament prophet said about Israel at this point. And this is sort of the 500s BC. Okay, Woe is me, says the prophet, for I have become... As when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Looking at that first verse, isn't it almost like Jesus is just putting that verse on display in the first century? I hungered, my soul desired food, and yet I did not find figs. That's literally just the first verse here. But of course, uh, it's talking back in this time about the people of Israel and, and notice what God finds and what the prophet finds among them. No fruit. The godly has perished. There's not a godly one among them. Instead, they're not worshipping God. They're, they're not loving and caring for their neighbour. They're lying in wait for one another, waiting for blood. Lying in wait to see what they can get for themselves. They're living this self-focused, selfish life. I want to show you another example. Hosea chapter 9. We're going to all the places you never read in the Bible. Okay? Hosea chapter, uh, chapter 9. It's on page 750-something of the, the church Bibles, I believe. 756. Hosea 9. I like hearing the sound of Bibles flicking. That's good. Appreciate that you're following with this. So Hosea 9, verse 10. Again, we picture the prophet coming to Israel. What does he find? Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree, 
in its first season. I saw your fathers. It sounds positive, doesn't it? Imagine them looking at the fig tree from far off, a bit like Jesus did. Wow, look, that must be a fruitful fig tree. And then he walks up, he walks closer, and what does he find? But, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved, right? If what they saw was the tree which had the promise of fruit, it's like, it's like a summer's day when you, you've got the tray of mangoes and, oh, I can't wait to get into it. But, but then when he comes up, he finds that the mangoes are rotten. There's no fruit on the tree. Why? Because God's chosen people are not worshipping him. They have turned to Baal. They have turned to idols. They are no longer worshipping the true and living God. The God who, who formed them. The God who saved them. They've turned instead to a not God. And so the passage goes on to pronounce judgment in a whole lot of ways. If you go down the verses, you can take a look later. But their glory will fly away like a bird, says the prophet. It says, I will take their children away, which is what happens in the exile. I myself will depart from them, says God. I will love them no more. Then verse 16, Ephraim, one of the tribes, is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. And isn't that again just Jesus putting that scripture on display? May, you never, or may fruit never come from you again. And why? Why? Verse 17 tells us, my God will reject them because, here's the reason, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. It's, this judgment is coming because they have not listened to God. They have not heeded his word. They've rejected him by turning to idols and they've rejected him by hating one another. And so judgment comes. And in, in Hosea's time and in Micah's time, that looks like exile. That looks like being kicked out of the promised land. But here Jesus is, is warning. He's saying, this is about to happen again. Judgment is coming. Of course, not all Israelites have turned away, right? I mean, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. They're Jewish. 11 out of 12 of them end up following him. And if you remember from last week with the temple, when Jesus cleared the temple, he cleared the courts and people came. Remember the, the lame, the blind, the children calling out, Hosanna to the son of David. They recognize something of who Jesus is. There are Israelites still, even in the first century, a remnant who are still responding to God, listening to God. But also remember... Many in the crowd who happily received Jesus into Jerusalem and cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Many of them will be the ones who shout, crucify him by the end of this very Passover week. And remember also that the leaders, the religious leaders in the temple, they were indignant when they saw what Jesus was doing. The whole temple system has become broken and weak. It's become a, a system of dead religion because at this point in history, so many of the Israelites actually are just treating their religion like, like a performance, like it's enough to have the leaves but not the fruit, right? It's, it's external performance, not the, the stuff of the heart. It's just for show, like leaves on a fig tree. It looks spiritual from a distance. It looks godly. It looks very religious, but it is not. It is not what God is looking for. Now, uh, there's a pastor named John MacArthur. Have you heard of him before? 
uh, yeah, good preacher. Um, he tells a story once of being on a plane once, uh, going between America and somewhere else. And uh, he, he's on the plane with uh, a group of Orthodox Jews. Uh, about a dozen, actually, so it's quite a, a lot. And uh, these are the guys that will wear the, the long robes and they'll have sort of the curly sideburns. And, and most importantly, they fastidiously keep the Old Testament laws. Okay, so when Deuteronomy says, um, take the law and bind it on your head and bind it to your wrists and write it on the door frames of your house, they literally do those things. It, it is actually symbolism, remember, where something stands for something else. Uh, but uh, it means, you know, bind it on your head, memorize it, know it, take it in deeply, bind it to your hand, do God's word. That, that's really what it means. But they take this literally and get a little box and sort of strap it to their head and keep a little copy of uh, part of God's law in there. And so on this plane, here's these dozen or so guys in their robes with their, it's called a phylactery, the little box on their head and on their wrist. Uh, and uh, it comes time to be one of the appointed prayers. Um, this isn't something that was an Old Testament law. It's an additional law that they put upon themselves. Uh, and so here it is. It's the time to pray. We've got to face Jerusalem. Which way is Jerusalem? We're in a plane. It's hard to tell. Think it's this way. And so they get down into the aisle, right? The plane is in the air. dozen or so guys crowding into the aisle, and they start bowing down and waving their hands and bobbing up and down and gesticulating and calling out in Hebrew. Uh, meanwhile, the poor waitress is just trying to get through to serve lunch, Right? And, and there's, there's something in this picture here where you go, wow, like, don't they look very dedicated? Don't they look very religious? The prayers and the robes and, wow, even on the plane they're praying in this way. But, but the problem is it's all for show. It's all just, it's all performance, right? Because, I mean, for one thing, they're out of touch with what's happening in the world around them. The lady just wants to get through. The good of others would actually be to pray in your seat. So they've, they've lost touch of what the law's about. Uh, but also, have they not lost touch with what God really wants? He didn't ask people to wear long robes and tie boxes to their head and pray in the middle of airplane aisles. No, he called them to bear a different kind of fruit. What is the fruit that God called the Israelites to bear? And what is the fruit that he calls us to bear today? Well, it's two things. The first thing is bearing the fruit of faith in the Messiah. This is why Jesus came. He came to save his people. First the Jews, then the Gentiles. But of course, his own people, by and large, rejected him. John the Baptist came saying, here's the one, here's the one who's fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. He's come for us, God's people. And yet his own did not receive him, John says in the first chapter of his gospel. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. The second kind of fruit that God looks for is obedience. And not the kind of obedience that, that is trying to earn God's favour as those gentlemen on the plane were trying to do. The kind of obedience that rests on faith in Jesus. If faith is the root of our, our salvation, it's, it's the root that goes down, actually gives us life, faith in Jesus' work on the cross, then obedience is the fruit. It's the fruit that grows out. And wherever there's root, there'll be fruit, right? That's why John the Baptist also said in Matthew 3.8, and if you want to tie a verse to your head, right, if you want to memorize something, memorize this verse, Matthew 3, verse 8, 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, what is the kind of fruit that God's looking for? It is in keeping with repentance. Repentance just means turning away, chucking a U-turn. I'm turning away from trusting in idols. I'm turning away from disobedience to God. I'm turning away from living selfishly. I'm turning away from just getting whatever I want to get in life. I'm turning away from religious rituals as the means by which I believe I'm saved. And instead, I'm turning to the appointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. I am turning to him. I am trusting in him. And then I am learning to follow him. That's what repentance is. And the Israelites' failure to do that brought them under God's judgment. That's what Jesus is picturing here with the withering of the fig tree. Hard stuff. Hard stuff. And, you know, at one level, uh, he judges the, the broken system, right? The temple, the sacrifices, the whole thing. And in fact, the temple does get destroyed in AD 70. So Jesus is right. Judgment is coming in a very literal sense. Uh, but... There's also a sense, we, we do have to, have to be clear about this, here's a sense in which he judges the people. And it's okay for God to judge people. This isn't us judging people. This is God through his son, Jesus Christ, judging those on the basis of the fruit that they are bearing or not bearing. And I'm going to make a statement here that may be controversial for some of you. On the basis of what Jesus does here, on the basis of New Testament scripture, Israel is no longer at the centre of God's plans and purposes. I know, a bit controversial for some. You may have been taught differently about this, and that's okay. But I want you to hear that, that based on what Jesus is doing here, Israel is no longer at the centre of God's plans and purposes. A clear message here is the fig tree is withering, right? The fig tree is, is dying. Jesus pronounces judgment. Because after all, God gave the Israelites chance after chance after chance after chance. This is just salvation history across the Bible, isn't it? Across the Old Testament, chance after chance after chance. In fact, Romans 10, right at the end of Romans 10, uh, it has God saying, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Chance after chance after chance. And then in Romans 11, you get this statement that, that God has broken many of them off like branches from the tree. Not us doing that, God doing that, because there was no fruit. Now, um, again, this is hard to say when talking about Israel is so politicised, right? Uh, it feels like we're taking sides in a war by saying something like this, but we're not. This is talking about spiritual reality. This is talking about spiritual fruit. And it's also important to say that God isn't done with the Israelites. If you want to go read Romans 11 on your own time, that's the other message of Romans 11. Okay? God is not done with the Israelites. There is still a remnant. There are still people in Jesus' time, like I said, the disciples, who are turning to the Messiah and who are repenting. And there are people in our time who are turning to the Messiah and are repenting, even right now while there's a war going on. No doubt. There are new converts, new disciples being made amongst the Israelites and amongst the Palestinians, mind you. But the thing to clarify here is that there aren't two ways to God. And sometimes this is where people have been taught very wrongly. Um, it's not like there are two ways. One is being Jewish and the other is by faith in Jesus. No! 
The scriptures are 100% clear. There is one way to salvation, is there not? By faith in Jesus alone, whether Jew or Gentile. That's it. There's no other plan. Just faith in Jesus. There is one way to God. He has no grandchildren. Doesn't matter what your heritage is. In fact, Jesus even says to a group of religious leaders at some point, you say that you have Abraham as your father. God can make children out of these stones. And he has, hasn't he? Look at these stones, right? (laughs) It is only by faith in Jesus. Because think about it. Only through Jesus can our rebellion against God actually be dealt with. Like I said before, there's no room for hatred of Israel. There's no room for looking down on Israel either because haven't we all done what they have done? Hasn't God given us chance after chance after chance after chance after chance to obey him? And We've all stuffed it, haven't we? We've all disobeyed him. We've all spurned his Messiah. We've all said, I'm going to go do my own thing my own way. And the law won't save us from that. Doing good things won't save us. Jesus will come and just say, your good things are like leaves. They don't fix the problem. Judgment is coming on Israelite and Gentile alike. And yet at the cross, at the cross, Jesus takes the penalty we deserve. Think about what happened to that fig tree when it was judged to have no fruit, right? Withered, died, destroyed. Here comes Jesus, the fruitful righteous, innocent son of God, and as he hangs on the cross, he bears the curse of God for us. He withers. He is destroyed. He takes the judgment we deserve. He takes our sin. And then he rises on the third day in victorious, resurrection, vibrant, fruitful life, and the fruit of his resurrection is all of those saved people that cling to him in faith. Hallelujah. This is Jesus. It is the one way to be saved. And it's essential that we get this. Jew or Gentile, one way through faith in Jesus. And that's why Jesus says what he does next to his disciples, by the way. He shows that while Israel failed, God is then raising up a new people. Come back to Matthew 21 with me. Verse 20. Matthew 21, verse 20. Now... He's withered the fig tree. And then in verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Now, interesting that they ask, how? I wonder what's going on in their minds there. I imagine something like, teach us how to do this that you have done. Because this would come in real handy if we want to wither a couple of Romans here and there who are getting in our way, right? (laughs) How is not the question to ask, actually. Why is the question to ask? Why did the fig tree wither at once. Remember, Jesus is making a point here. And so he then goes on to to clarify why it is that the fig tree withered. It takes a little bit of unpicking to understand what he's doing here, though. Verse 21, truly I say to you, meaning, listen up, I've got something that, that needs correcting here. Don't worry about what happened to the fig tree. Yes, you'll you'll do that sort of thing, and I'll explain what that is in a second. You'll do that sort of thing, but but even more by faith you will see this mountain taken up and thrown into the sea. Now again, our big word, symbolism. (laughs) This is not literally talking about picking up a mountain and throwing it into the sea. Notice, in fact, he says this mountain. It's not just any mountain. It's a specific mountain. 
Remember where Jesus is at this point. He's walking into Jerusalem. And so what mountain is it that sort of casts a big shadow over the front of them? It is Mount Zion. It's the Temple Mountain. The mountain that represents all of the Old Covenant. The mountain that represents all of Israelite religion up to this point. The mountain that represents the old way of of rituals, the Old Covenant. And he's saying that this mountain of barren religion and false worship, you will see it taken up and thrown into the sea. You will see it removed if you have faith. And like I said before, the temple, of course, was removed in AD 70. That was a literal sort of fulfillment of this, if you want. The temple mount was removed. But more than that, old covenant religion has, in fact, been removed from God's purposes. Not removed and replaced. And sometimes that's how people understand this. And, and what I'm talking about sometimes gets sort of thrown down as replacement theology. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's removed and fulfilled. And there's a difference here. Uh, in our old house, we actually had a leak in the wall one time in the living room. Right? Uh, the air conditioner had a little thing, condensation problem with it. And so water got into the, the, the drywall. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So I grabbed a hammer <laughs> and opened up a hole in the wall. And uh, thought, oh, okay, there's a problem, fixed it. Okay, good. And then I thought, I've got to patch the hole. I don't know how to patch a hole. So I went and got some gyprock from Buddings. And we had people coming over that night. And so I got the gyprock and I lent it against the wall. And I put a blanket over the top of the gyprock. And I went, great, now I've got a little interior design piece <laughs> sort of covering over the hole. Great, fantastic. Now, uh, no one who came over was fooled by that. <laughs> they could see what was happening. You could feel the draft from the hole if you sat at a certain point. In the, in the lounge. <laughs> now, um, temporary solution, Okay. A temporary solution. But then you, you look at the, the piece of gyprock there and you go, ah, oh, yes, you cut a hole out of that and you patch it in and there's going to be the proper solution to fix a hole. That's what's happening here as well. The old covenant was always meant to be a temporary solution. That's why God built a fail-safe mechanism into it. He knew his people couldn't keep the law, so he gave them a sacrificial system. But even the sacrificial system wasn't meant to be the be-all and end-all. You've got to come back over and over and over. There's no end to it. You never know when you're truly, truly saved. You just hope by faith that you are, that the sacrifices have done enough. But then Jesus comes. He is the one sacrifice to end them all. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, given so that you may be brought to God. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died once for all. And so you, you look at the the old covenant leaning up against this hole of sin and judgment like a piece of gyprock. And you go, yes, it's covering the hole, but something more has got to happen. And so then Jesus comes, it's sort of like a, a piece of the gyprock, if you want. He emerges out of this old covenant time. He keeps the covenant himself, in fact. And then uh, Jesus fulfills the law in the same way as this piece of gyprock patches the hole. He is the one that brings the solution to our problem of sin and our problem of judgment. He's the fulfillment. Now, you don't need the gyprock anymore, do you? You can get rid of that thing. Because the better thing has come. The hole's patched up. You're not going to feel the draft. This is like what happens between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's not just remove and replace with something different. It's remove but fulfill. Or fulfill and then remove. And in so doing, Jesus gathers a new people, the church, made up of both believing Israelites and believing Gentiles. One new people from the two people. Does that make sense? In which now there is no longer Jew nor the Gentile, male nor free, male, slave or free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. One new people. 
Hence he says, truly I say to you, if you have faith, verse 21, if you have faith, he actually uses that word you seven times in just those two verses. Why? Because he's showing that it's about you, the disciples here right now who are responding to Jesus and all those like you who will respond to Jesus in the future. You are the new people of God, right? A new people, not the nation of Israel, but the church made up of both Jew and Gentile. A new way, not rituals, but faith alone in Christ alone. And a new place, not one temple upon one mountain, but gatherings everywhere. Isn't that exciting? We're the fruit of that. This is the new thing that God was doing at this time. And in light of that, Jesus then finishes by turning the whole fig tree lesson into something bigger. He turns it into a call to pray. A call to pray. Because fruitful faith is prayerful faith. He tells his disciples, have faith and pray. I'm not giving you the power to curse Romans and curse plants. I'm giving you the power to pray. To pray, in fact, uh, not just in general here. I think there's something specific. The context is pray that the Lord would move the mountain of dead religion. Pray that the Lord would move the mountain of dead religion. Pray for the Lord to save people. Pray for the Lord to open eyes that they would see the beauty of Jesus. Pray for the Lord to open ears that they would hear the truth of his word. Pray for the Lord to turn souls and hearts so that they believe and go forward in repentance. That's what he says to pray about. And he will do it. He will do it. He will save people. Verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, in this kind of prayer, for God to save people from fruitless religion or a fruitless life, you will receive if you have faith. And friends, the temple fell, did it not, in AD 70? But the church rose. And we're still here. We are the fruit of someone else's prayer. Maybe even the disciples' prayer there that afternoon. And so let's bring this all together. Jesus searches for fruitful faith. He searched among God's Old Testament people, Israel, and he found only leaves. He did not find fruit. The leaves of false religion hid a deep rejection of God. And so he warns both them at that time and us today. Judgment is coming. And the only way to be saved is through faith in the Son, the Messiah. So cling to him. Cling to him. Trust in the Lord Jesus alone. I know we hear that all the time. But here this morning, trust in Jesus Christ. Your good works will not save you. They are like leaves on a fig tree. That's not what God is looking for. He is looking for you to turn to his son. Turn away from doing things to earn God's favor. You can't. Turn and trust in what Jesus has done. Not what you do, but what he has done. And then, having been saved, go forward in repentance. Go forward in in turning away from your own pride and your own decisions about how to run your life and instead let Jesus run your life by his word. Go forward in repentance. That is fruitful obedience. How can you tell? How can you tell if you're fruitful in God's sight? Well, first, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone to save you? 
That's the root, remember? That's the root of our salvation. And then if there's root, there'll be fruit. Can you see the fruit of faith coming out in obedience? Can you see ways in which you're changing as you learn to follow the Lord Jesus? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? J.C. Ryle, a writer, once said that open sin and unavowed belief no doubt slay their thousands, right? We look around at non-Christians, oh yeah, of course, yep. But profession without practice slays its ten of thousands. People who think they're God's people, but are not actually living it out. There is a greater risk, a greater danger. And so this is the thing that Jesus challenged in the Israelites. He searches our lives too, friends. What does he see? I hope that he sees genuine faith in him. I hope he looks at your life and he sees, there is a person who clings to me alone. And I hope also he looks at you and he sees sincere repentance. Yes, struggle. Don't we all struggle? I struggle in the fight against sin. But repentance is when we say, I'm not giving up in the fight. I'm not letting sin master me. I'm not giving up on killing it. I'm going to keep putting it to death. Yeah, I stuffed up again. Okay, that's serious. <laughs> that's not just something to paper over. I turn to Jesus for forgiveness. I confess it to a brother or sister. I work on it with the Lord's help. That's repentance. Does Jesus see that in your life? There might be something you need to do in response to this. Because if God did not spare his ancient people, surely he will not spare us. Do you need to turn to Jesus in faith this morning? Maybe you're realizing you've been living under the, the shadow of law. You've been living thinking that good works is what will earn God's favor. It won't. Talk to someone here this morning. Talk to a Christian that you've met here this morning. If you don't know anyone, come and talk with me. Okay, Talk with Andrew up the back, our other elder. Um, to ask them what faith in Jesus looks like for them. And if you want help coming to that point yourself, ask for that help. Don't sleep on it. And friends, if you're looking at something in your life, and I mean, as I'm talking, you'll know what it is, right? If there's something in your life that is like a dead branch that needs to be broken off because it is fruitless, don't sleep on breaking it off. Ask for the Lord's help. Confess your sin. There's nothing that's hidden from him. He comes searching. So confess your sin to him. You might even like to confess to a brother or sister that you trust here this morning. Receive prayer for it. Get some help. Move forward in repentance. This is the fruit that Jesus is looking for. And just as a final encouragement, uh, just as Jesus finishes this passage right on, on prayer and on praying for the lost to be saved, don't give up on doing that. This is part of fruitful faith. Pray for the lost to be saved. Pray for Israel, would you? And again, not a political thing, not pray that they'd win the war or something like that. I mean, I mean pray that Israelites would come to trust in the Lord Jesus. Don't we want to see that? Out of anyone on earth, should not God's ancient people turn to their Messiah? Pray that they would. Pray that they would. I've been rebuked by this passage this week because I do not pray enough for Israel in that sense. Pray that they would. Pray for Christian brothers and sisters over there in Israel right now who are still trying to hold out the gospel in the midst of a chaotic war. Pray for them. Pray for them to have courage and stand strong. Pray for Israel. Pray for the lost in your life. 
Pray for, for non-Christians, you know, workmates, friends, uh, sons and daughters. Don't give up praying for them, friends, because the, the reality here is Jesus will save all of those who are God's people. He will do it. Keep clinging to him in faith. In fact, just to finish, we received a letter from our uh, compassion child this week, Sharen. Uh, we've been praying for Sharen to know Jesus for years and years and years. She lives in Indonesia, Muslim-majority country. Talk about dead religion, okay? Uh, and we received this letter from her finally this week where she said she was praying for us. Isn't that cool? There's fruit. Don't give up. Turn to Jesus. Keep turning away from sin. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And pray. Pray that many more would join us. Let's pray for that now together. Lord, as we think about just the, the broad sweep of salvation history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down the line. We know that your heart grieves that your ancient people, by and large, have not turned to you. Lord, we know that you have a new people now in the church, but we pray that many more Israelites, Lord, Many more who have this rich heritage in your word would turn to Jesus and be added to our number. We don't look down on them, Lord, because we know that by their rejection, you turned to us. But Lord, we pray that you would turn many back to Christ. Lord, this morning we also pray that you might help us to bear fruitful lives, looking to Christ in faith, continually repenting. In Jesus' name, amen. We have an opportunity to...